Theatre Podcast. My name is Philip and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Episode 2, Dionysus, the beginning of Greek theatre. Last time we took a very quick journey through several hundreds of thousands of years to look at how theatre might have developed from the very earliest times. We followed how man's innate desire to mimic combined and developed with the creation of myth and religion as proto-societies came into being. A fast-forward to some of the first sophisticated societies took us to the Abydos Passion Play performed in ancient Egypt, where we had a glimpse of what might be considered the first professional theatrical production. Now, in this second introductory episode, it's time to move forward to the start of theatre as we know it. Specifically, we're going to go to Greece in the 5th century BCE, where we can see plays and performance developing into an art form out of religious ceremonies. But first, let's set the scene a little more. Who were the Greeks, and why do they get the credit for creating theatre? Pre-Roman history of Greece is generally divided into six parts, starting at the early Bronze Age, where the prehistory period slowly becomes recorded history. By 3000 BCE and through to about 1600 BCE, mankind started to leave his mark on the landscape in more significant ways, and we have the first archaeological evidence of what we now call Minoan culture. This was based on the southern island of Crete, where archaeologists have uncovered large buildings, some up to four storeys high, wall art, pottery and evidence of towns servicing an extensive trading network. There is also evidence of the development of writing, where it's thought both trading and religious records were kept in a script based on the first alphabet, now known as Linear A. Although Linear A has never been deciphered, it's probably a combination of syllabic and ideographic symbols, and is considered to be the father of the future European alphabet systems. In the later part of their period of dominance, the Minoans had spread their cultural influence to mainland Greece and beyond. Minoan pottery has been found in Egypt and the Near East, and it's likely that the Minoans brought Egyptian papyrus back to Crete. By about 1600 BCE, the Minoan culture had declined and Mycenaean culture came to the fore, lasting until about 1100 BCE. The Mycenaeans were Indo-European peoples who had entered Greece from the north at about 1900 BCE and settled the mainland where they had become politically and culturally dominated by the Minoans. Their society was centred around 100 miles west of modern Athens, but spanned the Peloponnese and as such was the first distinctively Greek civilization. They adapted the Linear A script to a script that we now know as Linear B. Although it was still a mixture of syllabic and ideographic symbols, it's considered to be the earliest form of ancient Greek. Mycenaean dominance covered a period of significant palace building, and featured a developed trading network that covered extensive areas all around the Mediterranean. It was also the time of the semi-mythical destruction of the city of Troy, thought to have taken place at about 1184 BCE, as retold by Homer. Now there's much debate about the truth behind the Homeric stories, and also about the reality of the author Homer as a single person, But what is undeniable is that through Homer the story of the fall of Troy became central to the Greek myth and the Greek foundation story. As such, these tales feature heavily in the plays of the 5th century BCE. Following the Mycenaean period for about 300 years or so to about um, 800 BCE, there was a Greek Dark Age. 
This was the result of a fast decline of civilizations in the Mediterranean and Near East, known as the Late Bronze Age Collapse. In Greece, the Mycenaean culture and dominance ended in a very short period, maybe as little as 50 years. Cities and palaces were abandoned, some never to be reoccupied again, and, we assume, life became centred on subsistence agriculture. The cause of the collapse isn't clear, but climate change, extensive seismic activity, population expansion and invasion by other tribes, or a combination of all or any of these factors, have all been suggested. From about 800 BCE, there was a rise in the population and a gradual expansion of trading across the region. In the period up to 480 BCE, the political system developed and, in particular, the polis or city-state came into being, becoming the administrative, cultural and religious centres that existed into the classical period. Over a period of about 300 years or so, there were huge societal changes with the establishment of law codes in the polis and the introduction of coinage. Culturally, the period opens with the apparent loss of writing skills at the end of the Dark Age, but by the 6th century BCE, we have the earliest examples of Greek literature that have survived. Epic and lyric poetry were the predominant forms, and it seems that tragedy developed from these. Frustratingly, we don't have enough evidence to say exactly how or when this happened, but we can say that by the 5th century BCE, the tragedy performed as a play had developed, and the themes were very similar to those contained in the earlier poetic forms. The fledgling city-states became embroiled in a series of wars with the massive Persian Empire that extended from Western Asia to Eastern Europe. The Persians attempted to exert control over the Greek states that existed in modern Turkey, but when an attempt to conquer the island of Naxos failed and the Persian commander was dismissed, he turned rebel and incited the Hellenistic states in Asia Minor into revolt. He garnered support from Athens and other city-states, inflicting a defeat on the Persians in 498 BCE. Persian King Darius swore revenge and, following a three-year stalemate, decisively defeated the rebels in 494 BCE. Darius made sure the rebellion was completely defeated over the following year and then planned his revenge on Athens. The first Persian invasion of Greece began in 492 BCE, and successfully subjugated Macedon and then Thrace, but stalled and was abandoned in the end. In 490 BCE, a naval force was sent to complete the job. The Cyclades in the Aegean, southwest of the mainland of Greece, were conquered, but the Athenians inter intercepted the Persian army as they travelled towards Athens and won a great victory at the Battle of Marathon. The battle ended the Persian invasion with the rout of their army through some clever tactical fighting by the Athenians. But the legacy of the victory was more than just the defeat of the Persians in the field. Before the battle, the Athenians had sent messages to Sparta asking for support, but the Spartans refused the request, saying that they were in the middle of a religious festival. The fact that the Athenians then went on to defeat the Persians not only raised Greek esteem for the city, but proved that the Persians could be defeated. Athenian confidence in all things began to rise and they started the journey to the political and cultural dominance that they were to enjoy throughout the classical period. So by the 5th century BCE there was no concept of a unified Greece, but the polis was established, controlling a town and its surrounding villages and in some cases, such as Athens, also having some influence over affiliated city-states. 
As cultural and religious centres, the polis was the home to the festivals that produced the plays that we still know today. But one of the first misnomers we have to deal with is our naming convention. What we refer to as Greek theatre or ancient Greek theatre was in fact all of one place. All the examples we have today come from Athens, so we are really talking about ancient Athenian drama. There are references to other festivals in other cities producing plays, but we have no knowledge of them in any sort of detail. We draw a lot from a very few complete examples from one particular place, but it's all we have. The second misnomer that I would want to correct is that Greek drama was very similar across a long time span. In reality, Greek theatre was incredibly inventive, and a clear development can be seen from the earliest days to the later ones. If you have an image of the Greek theatre, it's probably of uh, the sun chorus in stiff costumes and masks that hide any personal expression. But I hope that what I can show you is that the theatre in Greek times was an exciting place to be as an audience member or as a performer. It was a time of immense innovation as the playwrights worked through the possibilities of the dramatic form. As we will see, the playwrights really were men of the theatre, involved in all aspects of the production, completely immersed in their craft. There's even a suggestion that the creation of drama was an extremely co collaborative endeavour, akin to the more modern idea of workshopping a piece of art for artistic creation by a group. There were three festivals that included theatrical competition. They were all dedicated to Dionysus, the god of fertility, pleasure, festivity and, of course, wine. The cult of Dionysus can be traced back to Mycenaean Greece, where the name is seen in the Linear B tablets, but the exact origin is no doubt further back in time, with the real origin of the cult somewhere in the Middle East. From earliest times, the cult was associated with raucous, anarchic behaviour, and the early Greeks seem to have embraced this and woven it into their ideas to celebrate the repetitive bounty of nature. All the festivals were about celebrating the natural cycle and the hoped-for bounty of nature and, by their nature, were celebratory and wildly joyful occasions. Originally, small festivals were held in towns and villages to give thanks for the harvest and it seems likely that the celebrations took place on a conveniently level and cleared space that was associated with the harvest itself, the threshing floor. These celebrations were popular and as the towns and cities grew they became public organised events. By the 5th century BCE, in the major towns they were highly organised and the party element balanced by serious ritualised religious observances. Clearly these were people who worked hard, but they also played hard and prayed hard and they did that in the context of the festivals. There were two minor festivals. The Rural Dionysia was a midwinter festival occurring just after the solstice, much like Christmas and its Roman predecessor Saturnalia. The festival took place over several days, involving processions, theatre and poetic presentations, and much eating and drinking of course. The celebrations involved the wearing of masks too, so what with the anonymity, the excitement and the wine, inhibitions and the usual social conventions could become loosened. Village, village leaders processed as Dionysus and his entourage of male satires and female menads, meaning raving ones, 
both dressed in animal skins and masks, with the Menads performing frenzied dancing as they progressed through the town. Special songs praising the god called Dithirams were composed and sung. The Dithiram is a poem sung by a chorus of men and boys that had developed in the 7th century BCE, so by this time already a well-established form. As a winter festival, the rural Dionysia would have been a very local affair and would not have been attended by many travellers. In ancient times, travelling, be it by sea or land, was a risky business. Not only did the traveller have to contend with the dangers of brigands on the road or pirates at sea, but the natural forces of bad weather could be enough to delay or completely scupper a planned trip. We should never forget that in ancient times, people lived very locally. Although we travel wildly and internationally today, we only have to go back three or four generations to meet our ancestors who only travelled rarely. Go back further than this, and we find populations that largely didn't move unless they were traders by profession, soldiers or slaves. As we've already seen, the ancient world had a well-established and sophisticated trading network, particularly around the Mediterranean, where sailors could hug the coast and trade one commodity for another as they worked their way around the sea, following the winds and currents. But even travelling as a merchant was not without its risks. Just being a stranger coming into a community could be problematic, as the more isolated communities treat the outsider with much suspicion, if not outright hostility. The other major festival was the Linnea held in January, and therefore also largely restricted to local residents attending. The worship undertaken at the festival is not well known. Uh, evidence for these festivals comes mainly from vase and other paintings. But as a Dionysian festival, its form was probably similar to the rural Dionysia. By the 5th century BCE, there was a dedicated theatre to Dionysus within the city of Athens, where the main events of the celebration probably took place. Plays may have been part of the festival from the earliest times, but by about 442 BCE an official competition for comedies was introduced, followed a few years later by a competition for tragedy. Five comedies were performed in competition, and it's here that many of the works of Aristophanes were first performed. The city, or Great Dionysia, was, which probably dates back to the 6th century BCE, was held in March and April in the month spanning the vernal equinox, whenever that fell, and was the largest festival. This was a major event in Athens, its organisation falling to the chief magistrate, who started planning for the festival as soon as he was elected. Attendance was by all the citizens of the city, and representatives from the city-states that were federated to Athens. There were also many travellers attending, as the trade trading season was already underway. The festival was part fertility rite, part party, part religious celebration and partly just showing off the wealth of Athens. It really is very difficult to overestimate the impact and importance of the festival to the city and the citizens. On the first day there was a huge procession. A sacred wooden statue of Dionysus was carried through the city to the temple, located on the south slopes of the Acropolis. It was not alone. Cult and fertility symbols, including giant phallus pulled on a cart, were paraded with the statue. The sponsors of the festival gathered by the organising magistrate took pride of place at the front of the procession, no doubt dressed in much finery. Next came the chorus, who would perform the Dithirams, in competition at the theatre. 
The theatre itself was probably only open to male Athenian citizens, with women, slaves and foreigners being excluded. Estimates vary, but an audience of up to 16,000 people is plausible, some argue even more. The Dithyram competition opened the festival, and then bulls were sacrificed, the meat being the substance of a feast for all the citizenry that evening. Day two opened with another procession. During the Peloponnesian War, this was led by the orphans of the Athenian war dead, honouring their fallen fathers. At the theatre, starting at dawn, three tragedies by a playwright were presented, either a true trilogy or three thematically related plays. This was followed by a satyr play. Now, little is known about the satyr plays, as there is only one complete example that has survived. But they were probably bawdy comedies for light relief after the serious work of the tragic trilogy. The next two days followed the same pattern. Early procession, three tragedies, satyr play. Then, no doubt, more eating and drinking to set you up for the next day. So we have a series of daily processions with much drinking of wine and some exuberant behaviour as the usual social restraints were loosened. Then the men get to see three tragic plays which, okay, are shorter than your average Shakespeare by quite a long way, but still, they're sitting on a stone terrace or a wooden bench in the warming day, having got up early after a night of drinking. Personally, I find this hard to get my head around. But that's how it worked and it was an integral part of Athenian cultural and political life. This, I think, speaks to the Athenian attitude to their home and fellow citizens. In this fledgling democracy, every man's vote, and sorry ladies, it was still at that time only men, really did count towards the way the city was governed, and that fed into the way your religious observances were maintained and how you were entertained. Attendance at the theatre at the festivals was part of your public duty. We, we can only hope that it was a pleasure and an honour, not just a duty. But I guess if you thought the plays were not as good as last year's and you had a sunburn and a sore backside by the end of the day, at least there was a promise of a good drink and a feed and maybe you could get a dance or even a quick fumble with some girl that you wouldn't normally be allowed to socialise with. One can only guess at the collective hangover that the city woke up to after the last day of the city Dionysia. So although there is some scholarly disagreement about the exact content and form of the festival, and it altered somewhat over the years, there is generally agreed a pattern of a playwright presenting three tragedies and a satyr play in competition over three days. It's from this mould that we get the extant Greek tragedies. The later days of the festival featured comedies, but these and the competition structure that uh, surrounded them is not documented. It's a sad truth that only about 1% of the cultural output from the classical period has survived. So the best evidence we have suggests that the prayers to Dionysus, performed by a group of men in a village setting who, who may have been local priests, morphed into the formalised dithyram, to which some movement became added over the years. Then the prayers were expanded on uh, through the influence of lyric and epic poetry, to include mythic tales, and this then developed into the earliest form of tragedy. And that brings us to the festivals of the 5th century BCE. So, who were the playwrights and which of their plays do we still have? I've already said that the evidence is very limited, and here is exactly how limited it is. We only have 31 complete tragedies in our possession. 
But there is reference material that shows there were many, many more plays written. Unfortunately, for these we only have fragments, titles or descriptions to go on. Working chronologically, first there was Aeschylus, uh, born about 525 and lived until about 456 BCE. Prior to this, there is little evidence of the plays that must have existed, and we can only make inference of their content through their successors and from some brief descriptions and fragments. So Aeschylus is a good starting place. Only seven of his plays survive, but these include the Oresteia trilogy, the only surviving trilogy and one of the most popular Greek plays today. The trilogy, Agamemnon, the Libation Bearers and the Eumenides, tell of the cycle of revenge that overtakes the house of Atreus and contrasts justice with revenge and vendetta with legalised punishment. The trilogy won the Tragedy Prize at the city Dionysia in 458 BCE, and we'll look at the Oresteia in more detail in a future episode as well as some of his other plays. Sophocles had a writing career that overlapped with Aeschylus. His dates are about 495 to 406 BCE. Of the more than 120 plays he wrote, only seven survive. To his contemporaries, he was the most popular playwright if judged by victory in the competitions. He completed 30 times, winning 24 times, and came second on the other occasions. By contrast, Aeschylus won 13 competitions and Euripides only won four. The best-known works of Sophocles are his plays Oedipus Rex, Oedipus at Colonus and Antigone. These are often put together as the Theban plays, but they are in fact plays from three different trilogies whose partners are now lost. With the work of Sophocles, we can begin to see character development and in Antigone, an interesting portrait of a woman against the state. Euripides completes this trilogy of poets. His dates are 480 BCE to 406 BCE, and he's almost exactly contemporary with Sophocles, another prolific writer. Attribution to some of his works is problematic, but it's generally accepted that he wrote over 90 plays, of which 17 survive. The fact that more of his tragedies survived is down to his popularity during the later Hellenistic period, where he stood alongside Homer and Menander, a writer of comedies, as a mainstay of literary education amongst the ancients. His plays are not only packed with very human characters faced with monumental actions, but characters that take on a complexity not seen before. Perhaps these days Medea is the most well-known of his plays, but we see his influence permeating theatrical history throughout the ages, and not just in tragedy, but in comedy too. Greek comedy is generally divided into old and new. Aristophanes, 446-388 BCE, is our main source for old comedy. We have 11 mostly complete plays out of about 40 that have been attributed to him. His comedy is full-on satire and ridicule, bordering on slander. The plays are harder for us to appreciate as the themes and targets are very current and specific whereas the tragedies contemplate more universal themes that still resonate today. Perhaps Aristophanes' best-known play today is Lysistrata, where the women withhold sex from the men until they negotiate the end of the Peloponnesian War. 
Given that Athens had suffered significant defeat in the war only a couple of years earlier, the audience's reaction, bearing in mind that some of that audience would have been veterans of recent campaigns, must have been interesting. Then we have to jump to Menander, 342-291 BCE, as our source for new comedy. His output of 108 known plays and good reputation through the early Roman period, but very few successes at the festivals, he won the Linnea festival only eight times and came last in the great festival twice, suggests that he had a wider following through the Hellenistic world, whatever the Athenians thought. New comedy focuses on the domestic, using fictional characters to satire society in general, rather than launching personalised attacks on individuals, as was the way with old comedy. Menander lived in a period of dictatorship, where criticism was less tolerated, so much safer to tell entertaining stories of wily merchants, cruel fathers, young lovers united after mild jeopardy. So we only have five playwrights to represent about 300 years of theatre. But from the perspective of the 21st century, they are titans of the theatre, each reaching into the future and influencing the theatre we enjoy today in different ways. The creative cauldron for their plays was very different from today, but at the heart of it they were exploring the human condition in the same way great drama has done through the subsequent centuries. Their pre-Christian world view was very different from ours. The gods were multiple, fickle, potentially cruel, and in many ways very human. Forgiveness wasn't expected from them, but still men and women pitted themselves against their gods and fate. That can be seen as heroism or hubris, and both exposed the status of the individual and of the state to the watching audience. The personal, the political and the religious were closely entwined, particularly in tragedy and old comedy, but that was a perfectly normal state for the society of this period. Next time, we'll take a deeper dive into the theatrical experience for the ancients. The experience was part of the festivals, but what was it like to visit the theatre? And how did the presentation and staging work? And what language developed around the performing art? And a lot of that will sound very familiar if you know something about the theatre of today. I look forward to your company next time, but if you have any comments or concerns in the meantime, you can contact me by email at thoetp at gmail.com or via Twitter at thoetp. Thank you.